0: take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. While you are turning there, make a couple of comments briefly. One, uh, we're at the last Sunday of a series of sermons, kind of a gap filler, so to speak, talking about our philosophy of ministry. By God's mercy, uh, this church has functionally doubled since the beginning of COVID. We're very thankful to the Lord's kindness, uh, but we do want to see how much we can get everybody on the same page moving in the same direction. It's not as much fun if we're all trying to pull different ways. We want to pull in the same direction. And we've been talking about what you see on the wall when you first walk in. What's the mission of this church? To gather and perfect the saints. That's what we're trying to do. Uh, Everything that we're trying to do in so much as we're able is geared toward that. If we can, if it's not gathering and perfecting the saints, we want to stop doing it. Two, what are our primary emphases? Well, word, sacrament, prayer, and fellowship. Those are the things that we're busy about how to implement. How do we gather and perfect the saints? Word, sacraments, prayer, and fellowship. Well, we've talked about words, prayer, sacrament, in that order. Today, fellowship, which is appropriate as we have a fellowship meal following the service. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers… I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit By the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by the one same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body so it is with Christ. For in the one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, Because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would there be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, we all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a still more excellent way. Let's pray. Lord, you've spoken to us in the reading of your Word. We pray, O God, that you would speak to us in its preaching for Christ's sake. Amen. It's interesting, when it comes time to have a conversation about philosophy of ministry, this is the one that, strangely enough, we get the most pushback on. It's the most common, right? Everybody understands the church needs to be filled with the Bible, so it's a good idea for the church, to have the Bible be a foundational part. No one has the courage to say prayer is not a good thing, though sometimes we believe it secretly in our hearts. Sacraments just confuse us, and so we kind of punt on that one and say, I'm sure the pastor knows what he's talking about. Interestingly, though, it's fellowship that I get the most pushback on. It's an interesting thing. It's really, really quite astonishing if you actually pay attention to it. One, I looked at a survey this week, did a little bit of research just in preparation for this, One survey of American adults responded, this is an amazing thing, for the category of feeling lonely frequently or almost all of the time. 39% of American adults report that they feel lonely almost all of the time. That's not the occasional kind of, you know, whimpery mood where you feel isolated and by yourself. Almost all of the time, this survey specifically included, this is amazing, kids or uh, young adults, average 18 to 25, just showed how old I was. Uh, children, uh, uh, not young children, is the next one. Uh, young people age 18 to 25, 61% of them, profound loneliness that dominated their life. Mothers of young children, 50%. It's amazing to see these numbers have all exploded since the pandemic has started. Certainly, we did ourselves no favors as a nation and as a culture. Half of young adults reported that they had not in the past several weeks had a single person take more than just a few minutes to see how they generally were and expressed genuine care beyond, how's it going Half of our people 18 to 25 don't feel like somebody has even talked to them about how they're doing in almost a month. The CDC, trust them, don't trust them, don't care. Young adults are suffering with loneliness, anxiety, and depression at a rate of almost 66%. That is a staggering number. A different study This is a fun one. Did a test on millennials. Now, uh, millennials have been kind of the the cultural kicking bag for, I guess, many, many years. We forget now that millennials are ages 22 to 42. They're not young anymore. Uh, They're 42, is young by some, I guess. One in five millennials report that they do not have a single friend. Not that they only have a couple, zero friends, tons of acquaintances zero friends that they can share their life with. Think about that for a second. One out of every five people in their 20s and 30s don't think they have any friends at all. A different study, this was conducted by Cigna, the uh, insurance company, found that 71% of millennials, this is, again, that 20 to 42, 71% of millennials feel lonely on a regular basis, Your Gen Z, that's your 2 years old to 22 years old, 79% of them are saying that their, their childhood is being dominated by loneliness. That is crazy. Four out of five people under the age of 20 say that loneliness is a profound reality in their daily experience. University of Pennsylvania has offered one in their studies. They found that, interestingly, it's more directly connected to social media usage than anything. It's no shock, interestingly, that your baby boomers, those that tend to be the least savvy in social media, sorry, I don't mean to hurt your feelings, uh, that group that's 62 to 82, they tend to be, weirdly enough, the people who struggle with loneliness the least. The age bracket that traditionally through human culture has been the loneliest is actually the age bracket currently in America that has the least problems with loneliness, Uh, Again, largely according to the University of Pennsylvania because they don't use very much social media. We can look at this. There's lots of reasons. It's not hard to figure out the fragmentation of the family. No more family meals. People don't learn how to talk to each other anymore. There's no intergenerational relationships. You don't see 20-year-olds hanging out with 80-year-olds anymore on a regular basis. Kids don't grow up knowing their great-grandparents spending time with their grandparents all of the time. And we have a a nation that has lost the idea of fellowship and is dying. Uh, It's been well proven. um, The increased rise in school shootings is a direct result of this. You don't have well-adjusted humans that are filled with friends that love their lives and are constantly invested in that go and take the lives of others. I I will say as a pastor who spends an, an inordinate amount of his time counseling, this is one of the single biggest issues I deal with. People are alone. Now, of course, that's a cultural analysis It's good and all, but it's not great. What does the Bible say? In order to have a kind of conversation about what the Bible says, we do have to have, again, I like to have these periodically to give a little bit of instruction, a little bit of a a grammar lesson. You're like, from an intro that good to a grammar lesson? Really? Really? English is a very weak language. Many of you know this. If you've studied other languages, you're aware of it. English is a very weak language. We don't uh, do a very good job of conveying a rich meaning with what we say. Uh, One of the big things, and I'm petitioning, no one has yet to listen to my petition, but I'm trying uh, for y'all to become formal, uh, rigid, proper English. And the reason for this is English currently doesn't do a very good job of delineating, distinguishing between a singular you, you individual person, and a collective, y'all, you all. And none of our translations that are really good translations, there are translations that do this, but they're by and large terrible. None of our English translations have had the courage yet to try to distinguish that in the text. And there's, there's a one major problem with that. Is that the vast majority of the time when we read the word you, because we are Americans who are dying on the inside from loneliness, because we are Americans, by and large, not all of us, I guess, but who have a nation that has been founded on individualism, because we are Americans that our history from the very beginning is, you can't tell me what to do, I want to do it my way. We read all use as the default singular individual. And if that weren't kind of the way we would have done it historically, the Two great awakenings on these shores have really kind of formalized that with the, the consequences of revivalism. And it's really funny to think about, I mean, I, I, I do this all the time. I enjoy it where people reference Bible verses that they love so dearly, and it makes me happy. I love hearing them. But how many of those is really intriguing? We read in the singular, and they're not. The default biblical position for dealing with humans is in the plural, it's not in the individual. I mean, we emphasize the individual, again, in the American church, and I'm not mad at that, but it's very much in the plural. I mean, we see it even in this text. We're going to kind of be all over, and again, this is more of a theological sermon than anything else, but what does the Bible say? Well, we're all Christians if we are in Christ, but it's, again, it, salvation is primarily talked about in the Scriptures, again, from this corporate idea That we together have been united to the one Savior. There's one Jesus, there's one Lord, and there's one church. She's filled with lots of individuals, she's filled with lots of different people, but it's one Lord interacting with one church. His first three verses kind of lay this out. You have the church in Corinth, which is, uh, we would say, a mess. By every guess, modern commentators guess that uh, this church was probably smaller than Christ Ridge is now, if not probably our size, not likely to be too much bigger. Yet when you read these letters, you think, my goodness, for a church that size, they have a lot of mess going on, don't they? They have tremendous wealth in the congregation. Some are using that to exploit it against those who have less wealth in the congregation. They've got drinking problems. They have sexuality problems. They have worship problems. They have speaking in tongues problems. They have, like, if you can think of a problem, they have it going on. So as the chapter starts off, Paul's going, okay, 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 we've got to talk about the spiritual gifts because you've got all, all of them. You're really gifted people. But you have to understand that the defining, definitive idea of being in the church is, first and foremost, this relationship to Christ Jesus. Verse 2, when you're a pagan, you were led away into false religions. There are lots of different ways that happened. Verse 3, don't worry, (laughs) you have to know Jesus. The church has to know Jesus. Now, again, interestingly, this is such an intriguing thing for us, is we automatically hear that and think individually, don't we? We think about, I've got to have my own personal faith. And that's true. You do. 100% you do. But we don't ever think about it from this kind of corporate idea that God's people live together, exist together. We're saved together, not separate one Savior for one church. 4, 5, and 6 highlight this even further. Now, there are varieties of gifts, lots of different people, right? Yay! But one Spirit. Varieties of service, but that same one Lord. Varieties of activities, but that same one God who empowers them all in everyone. It's God at work in His people. There's one Savior. Now, why have a starting point kind of talking about that? I actually would say that this is going to be one of the big hills that we're going to have to die on, I think probably over the next 20 or 30 years in the American church. Even as evangelicalism kind of hit some really bumpy rocks these last couple of weeks, we're technically confessional, not evangelical. But this idea that you don't get to bring your own Savior, you don't get to bring your own God, there is one. One Lord, one Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the one who's described in this book, and he's not shaped by your understanding. His reality is not determined by your feelings, and it's not determined by your understanding of the text. His reality is real whether you like it or not. there are parts of it I really don't like. doesn't make them any less true. Together, we have to kind of, again, build this idea corporately to think that we are God's people together coming to meet with the one Lord and in doing so, laboring to have our minds and our hearts shaped according to His Word. If we were going to maybe even put this a little bit of a more pointed way, I would say there's an aspect in which we need each other to understand the Bible better. Right? when I read the Bible, I have my own strengths that I understand. I have some major weaknesses. I really don't understand them. When it comes time to read the passages of, of what mothering is like, I, I, I don't have as much of a head start as many of you in the room do your mother, you got a head start on me on understanding that passage. I need to learn from you. You need to learn from me. But interestingly, so much, is, again, this kind of American default position is I read the Bible myself. I have my own interpretation. It's mine because it's all about me. Instead of thinking about one Savior interacting with one church, now this one Savior interacts with His one church and gives one Spirit. Verses 7-11 through 11 highlight the role of the Spirit, that there's one Spirit that's given to all of God's people, to each one, each of these saints, each of these people in Christ is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We're given God's Spirit, but interestingly, why are you given the Spirit? Paul tells you. You were given the Holy Spirit for the common good. That's weird to think about, isn't it? Many of us have been taught, I was was given the Spirit to help me. I was given the Spirit to help my faith, which is true. I was given the Spirit to, to sanctify me. That's true. But many of us have this kind of massive blind spot in our teaching and in our thinking where I was given the Spirit of God for you. And you were given the Spirit of God for the people sitting next to you and the person standing up front. Your relationship with the Holy Spirit is for the benefit of everybody else in this room, not just for you. And already, if we're going to be academically honest, if we're going to be kind of emotionally honest as we start thinking about this, we'd say, this has to kind of reorient how we think about our relationships. I mean, how many of us, we think about our faith, we think about our Christianity being for me, right? Some of you grew up in a church background where you were taught Christianity, Jesus was your way to escape hell. It was fire insurance. Some of you were taught it was how to live your best life now. Some of you were taught it's how to have a good life, and in some sense, all of those are true, (laughs) in some sense. But there's an element that, that we tend to miss. It's that my Christianity exists for you and yours for me. And my relationship with the one Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, my filling the indwelling with the one Spirit of God, is given as a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To build one another up, verses eight through eleven. You begin to see the gifts start showing up in the passage. And why are they given? Well, the Spirit gives gifts individually for the corporate good to be built up. Now, some of you already are going. All right, I can I can kind of agree to that so far. You haven't stepped on my toes yet. Well, I'm not done. Hopefully, I will by the end one Savior, one Spirit. And it's easy for us to understand kind of those interactions corporately, but then we kind of partition them off from actually the means of grace themselves. This is where that kind of grammar question begins to be a bit of an amusing thing that when it actually, when you really actually pay attention to the Bible, when it talks about the means of grace, word, word, sacraments and prayer, the overwhelming priority is their corporate nature. It's the corporate emphasis, right? We have this in our confession. We talked about this for the preaching one. That one's easy. The Lord speaks to His people in His Word, but especially through the reading and the preaching of the Scriptures, Now, it's interesting that that's how our confession states. They're defining what our relationship with God is like, and it's to say, you can understand the Bible, but if you want to hear from God, especially you pay attention to the reading of His Word publicly in worship, and you pay attention to the preaching. Because in this corporate act, you hear from God in a way that you don't anywhere else. There's a reason why preachers are held to a stricter judgment than anyone else. Because the task we have is unbearably serious. You are interacting with your God through the word of God being proclaimed by a broken man. But it's interesting, even the very nature of a sermon is, by definition, corporate. You have to have a preacher, and you have to have an audience or a congregation, a listener, somebody. Um, corporate, maybe two. Corporate, maybe a thousand. I don't know. It doesn't matter. It's by nature, by definition, by, in its very essence, a corporate activity. Interestingly, if you go back and look at the passages that we looked at for the sacraments, First Corinthians chapter 10, just the, the previous page over in your Bible most likely. The cup of blessing that we, oh look, corporate again, that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we, corporate again, plural, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one body, I'm sorry, there's one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread together corporately. We do this activity together corporately. We grow together corporately. This is where the Reformed tradition has historically also differed quite substantially with the Baptist tradition. Because baptism, the primary emphasis in baptism is a corporate emphasis. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 21 that we read last time. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, plural. Right? That's not the singular. that's y'all. Use guys, yins, whatever part of the country you're from, it, right? It's plural. Baptism as a means of grace works corporately, not just individually. It's why my baptism benefits me, but you know what? Baptizing your babies benefits me too. I can grow by contemplating His faithfulness to you as well as His faithfulness to me. We're built up together. In fact, actually, Paul hints at this in verses 12 and 13. Look at what he says, and this one's a veiled reference. It's not super obvious. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit, so we have one Savior, now we have one Spirit. We're talking these unity words, we were all baptized into one body, corporate language, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, plural language. Again, we're made to eat and drink, we're made to be baptized. We are made to do the means of grace together. Now, this one's a particularly hard one. I'm not in any way denigrating private Bible reading. Please do that. I'm not in any way denigrating private prayer. Please do that. I am 100% denigrating private sacraments. Don't do that. Don't do that. But it's interesting. Even the church had an idea of this, this kind of from the very beginning. Acts two forty two, kind of the, the, the kind of pinnacle statement of the early church functioning, functioning, it says, and they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and key word here, the prayers. The body was built around these activities, corporately interacting with the apostles' teaching. His preaching, the Word of God, uh, the fellowship, and even the breaking of the sacraments, and even the prayers. And it's, the definite article is absolutely in the grammar because it had the idea of they had prayer meeting running from the very beginning of the early church. It's what the church was preoccupied with doing. Together, as much as we can, be together to do These things to be about these activities. It's one of the many reasons if you look at the Reformed tradition, historically it's viewed Sunday as the pinnacle day of the week and all of your other activities you know, Monday through Saturday as fuel for the Sunday service. Again, your private Bible reading is important. It's 100% important. It's absolutely critical. It's extremely, do not hear me say it's not important. It's 100% important. But your Bible reading is secondary to preaching because preaching is declarative of God's word going out by uh, the minister of the gospel with the authority of Christ. It's a corporate activity where together we interact with the word of God. Your private prayer, please don't ever hear, um, please pray, pray more and more and more and more. You don't like my sermons? Pray for those. Eh, Nothing makes me happier than when you do that. But your private prayers are fuel for your Sunday service. So that you're able to, with the people of God, bow the knee together as we prayed through Psalm 82 together. The content of it. As we bow the knee together and sang through, what, Psalm 80, I think it is, the first hymn we sang? Together. Putting words into our mouths that maybe aren't entirely uh, words that we're comfortable, that stretch us and force us to think differently and to feel differently, that might even call us to repentance, that force us to think about submission to God's Word as we sing together. Remember, that's what songs are. They're sung prayers as we pray together. It's an activity that's done corporately. Now, the, the kind of standard argument against this is: well, you're you're just trying to make us all alike, right? You're just you're just trying to squash my individuality. Right? You're, you're just trying to, to smush the special and unique thing that is me. Yes, I am, but no, I'm not. Now you've got to remember, these are words that are given here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to a, a diverse church. Verses 1 and 2, that's the point that even Paul begins with. Look, you are pagans and your background is wild, right? That Corinthian church has got some wild stuff going on. Their background is crazy. Verse 13, he makes that point again. Look, some of you are Jews, some of you are Greeks, some of you are slaves, and that, for the record, that's still present tense slaves. Some are currently free. Their experience as a church is crazy. I mean, to think about, it's very likely that at this point in church history, you could go home to a master and slave arrangement and then go to church and have those two be peers, and then finish church and go back home to a master and slave relationship. Can you imagine how emotionally and societally and culturally complex that would have been? The interesting thing is that that's the way it's supposed to be. The Lord's intentionally designed His church to be filled with misfits and weirdos and all sorts of people from all walks of life where we're not all the same. It's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be filled with people that think differently from you, that disagree with you. I mean, i to put it kind of a bit more bluntly. If you, if you never disagree with the people that you go to church with, friends, you've got, you got a problem with your church or with your mind, one of the two. I mean, for Pete's sake, most of us can't, we can't make it through a day without disagreeing with ourselves, much less anybody else. It's designed to be this way where God has, has pulled a bunch of people together and to put us into the same place to minister to one another, to grow with each other, to worship the one Lord and Savior together. It's supposed to be this way. And, friends, I also know that that's also the recipe for some pretty, um, at times, severe conflict, sometimes some pretty serious internal combustion of frustration, and maybe sometimes occasional creeping bitterness. And I'd love to pretend. That as this church has, like I said, doubled over the last three years or so, that as we've added more and more people, we've added people that agree with everything that we all think. But being that we couldn't agree prior to their arrival, I'm assuming that we can't agree on everything after their arrival. It's a diverse church. It's supposed to be. That's a good thing. It's God's gift to you, and it's God's gift to me. I would say as your pastor tenderly and hear this with all of the love and affection and concern that I possibly can say. If you find yourself in a situation where you are constantly frustrated or bitter, one, you're probably in sin and we need to have a conversation about that. Two, I am immediately worried for you. Please come talk to Brandon. Come talk to me let's get that sorted. That, that's the kind of like, to ignore that is that kind of, it'd be the illustration of like having, I have this massive spot of cancer on my arm. I think it'll probably go away later. I mean, I guess it could. It, it, it has probably happened once. That's not normally the way things work. You tend to ignore things like cancer. It tends to get you. It's not very good. You tend to ignore things like constant frustration or creeping bitterness. Friends, it will destroy your relationship with the church. We're called to be different people with different personalities, to be people that have different ways of thinking about the world. I know, it's crazy. We might even have Yankees in here too. It's okay. It's all right. God loves us together. Thank you for catching the joke in that. I am married to one. It's a good thing. Not just diversity of persons, we get to see diversity of gifts, verses 9 and 10, we see this laid out where the Spirit of God gives different gifts to different people for different reasons, right, for the common good, verse 7, but it's gifts of the Spirit and they're all different. And I, I would have to kind of comment on this. I, I think many of us have a really incorrect understanding of how spiritual gifts work. And so I'm going to talk about it for just a moment. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Many of us define our spiritual gifts by what I'm good at. Now, friends, there is a massive problem with that, and here's why. Because you are defining your gifts by the individual instead of by the body. You're defining your gifts by the individual good instead of by the common good. Right? Friends, most of the time, spiritual gifts are more often seen in their use than in your ability. Now, what does that look like? Well, this uh, is where, uh, step on your toes a little bit, it's okay, I still love you, it's all right. We have times where people will say, well, I, I don't think I can do that, I'm not, I'm not good at that, I'm not called to do that. Guess what? The church has needs, you're called to do that competency, really interestingly, is not a, you know, prerequisite for the church. If competency was a prerequisite for the church, none of us would have made it in here, right? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, He brings us, He changes us, most of us think of gifts as like these things that the Spirit gives us, that I have this ability that's good for me to do, that I take with me throughout the entirety of my life, and it's mine because that's what was given to me. And many us have been taught that. That's absolutely 100% wrong. Gifts are, first and foremost, fungible. The Spirit of God can give you a gift for a time, and He can take it away for a time. You go read church history. I love reading about the Puritans. They do this in Scotland and Wales all the time where they would stand up and preach and then one day the Spirit of God would leave and they'd have to go leave because they can't preach anymore. They lost the gift it was just taken from them. Your gifts aren't kind of fixed and rigidly established this way. They're also not about what you're good at. That's an important thing to get. So many of us are like, well, I'm gifted at a thing because I'm good at it. no. <laughs> You're gifted at a thing because the church needs it, and the Lord will use you with that. And funny enough, the more you do it, the better you'll be, right? We learn this with preaching all the time. I love doing this. I'm preaching professor sometimes. Most guys, when they come in and start, are rather bad, right? We are. It is. It's what we are. It's when I started. I, I remember bits and pieces of my first sermon series ever, and I'm so embarrassed by them, And you know the really important thing about it is I can't ever forget it because it's on the same book of the Bible I'm writing my dissertation on, so I can never forget how bad they were. But you improve the more you do it. You use them, and the Spirit of God blesses you. Friends, too often we get caught up in what I think I'm good at, and interestingly, again, we then take the kind of verses uh, twenty, what is it, uh, 9 and 10, and then even the end of it out of, out of context, where this idea that because I've been given this gift, I then am specifically called to this role. Because I'm good at this thing, I'm called to this role, this task. Not necessarily. I mean, I've spent 14 years at this church pastoring a church where I've got a preacher better than I am sitting in the congregation. Doesn't mean that he's called to pastor the church. It doesn't mean I'm called to sit. The Lord's called me to this place, and so I work. The Lord's called him to his, and so he works. Our role is not determined by what we're good at or even by what we think we're good at. It's determined by what God uses us with in the church. Now, what's the byproduct of this? I'm sorry, I'm having to go kind of quickly. This is probably a longer sermon than just one, but, eh, it's all right. We are a church that has one, one Lord. We are a church that has one Spirit, that's called to the corporate means of grace, a church that is designed to be diverse in our persons, a church that's designed to be diverse in our gifts, a church that's designed to be diverse in our roles. But the interesting kind of byproduct of this, the consequence of it, is that we are a church that ends up, if we're biblical, ends up being diverse in our ministry, a church that ends up being diverse in our ministry, look at verses 21 through uh, 27. This is really important. The eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor. Now, I'll be honest, as a kid learning this, and I'm sorry, I, I am still eight years old at heart. I think most men in the room are. As a small child beginning to understand this, I was terrified that I would be called to be the rear end of the church. <laughs> Somebody has to be it, right? Somebody has to be it. But it's interesting, you begin to see what happens is in the nature, how does the church work? Those parts that are weaker are indispensable. The church can't function without that. They're of utmost importance. In fact, actually, those are the parts of the Bible that we think are less honorable. We show greater honor to them because we keep them clothed all the time. It's really interesting, you can see that modesty was viewed differently in Bible times than it is today. We view modesty as a negative thing, where it's like, I should be able to show whatever I want to show to whoever I want to show it to. And interestingly, what the Bible is saying is, covering it is honorable. And you know what? Some of you are the honorable people in the church. It's your job to be covered up. I'm just kidding. But not really. Right? The Lord calls us to show honor to those parts that we think are, are, are unimportant we think are not valuable. Like I know there are some of you in the room that you think you have no place in the ministry of this church. I know this, and the interesting thing is is most of you encourage me more personally than most of the people I see on a weekly basis. Because I know how much it costs you to be here. To be a part of the church is not something that you can just waltz in easily and out. It costs you something. and It's honorable. God, verse 24, has so composed the body that he gives greater honor to the parts that lack it. I love this. Friends, if you think that you are unimportant in the church because you can't preach or you don't get to stand up front, one, that is devastatingly wrong. But two, interestingly, according to the Bible, which gifts are the ones that God honors the most? It's the ones you can't see that are weak. Being point, absolutely point, just brutally honest, Sometimes watching our aging saints, who I know are crippled by pain, walk into worship on Sunday morning, stirs my soul more than you will ever know. Because I know how much it cost them to get here. It cost me nothing, right? I'm young, I'm mostly fit some days, I can breathe half the time. It costs them something. Their weakness is our honor. The prayers at prayer meeting that stir my soul the most are not the prettiest. They're not the most elegant. They're the ones that are prayed with sincerity. A heart that's broken before the Lord. Messy, without the right words. Sometimes saying things that theologically, whoo, make me cringe. And they're my favorite. Because in their weakness it's our honor. You see, the reality of the matter is that Brandon and I do the least of the ministry in this church. It's the trick because you get to see us the most, but we do the least, or at least we're supposed to. Who are the primary evangelists in the room? It's you, Who are the primary people that pray in the room? It's you. Who are the primary people that give encouragement in the room? It's you. Who are the primary people that give money in the room? It's definitely not me. It's you. Who are the people who minister and care? Who are the people that that carry the most gifts? It's you. I would even say who carry the best gifts. It's you. A church that's filled with a diverse ministry so that together we can gather and perfect the saints. Now, I know I'm long and I'm going to just with a couple of quick points. I do have certain concerns that as we grow as a body, first and foremost, I do have a growing concern that we might have this idea that Sunday morning is enough. Don't get me wrong, Sunday morning is biblically commanded. You have to come to church if you're able, as much as, you know, within the proper, nuanced, confined answers. But there's an increasing kind of view that's popular in the world today in which to say that Sunday morning is kind of my transactional experience with God. And it's satisfactory. And it is good. Friends, it is good to be in worship. But it's interesting that if your gifts have been given to you for the common good and if their gifts have been given for your good, it's really hard to benefit from each other's gifts if the only time you interact with them is the time when I'm talking. Right? I mean, let's be honest. Sunday morning is the time where I talk the most. I mean, I talk a lot anyways, but it's the time I talk the most. How are you going to benefit from each other's gifting the most if you're only here in the time where those gifts are used the least? How will you benefit from them? I mean, if we wanted to think about it like just a ridiculous illustration, if God gave everybody in here a million dollars that they had to give away one kind of moment at a time, how would you ever benefit from their money if you never showed up when they gave it away? I give it away every other time, but Sunday morning. Why are you not getting any? Now, I know that there's medical concerns for some. I'm not mad at that. I get it. I understand there are other complications and circumstances for us. I'm not mad at it. I'm not saying even in some cases that it's sinful. I am saying that it's really the design for the church to be together. To be the family of God, to share giftings and abilities. The second challenge, and I'm going to be upfront about this, I know <laughs> I've heard this one. Some of you don't know everybody's name in the room. Some of you don't know maybe more than six or eight people's name in the room. Now, if you've been here for a month, I'm not mad at you. That's fair. That's 100% fair. Some of you have been here for a couple of years. You don't know. And friends, that, that grieves me because how are you going to benefit from their gifts if you don't know them? How are you going to pray for them if you don't know them? How are you going to be able to go to them when your heart is broken and you need somebody to encourage you if you don't know them? This is where I would say kind of maybe two of our biggest challenges or I mean uh, kind of activities that I would like for us to see happen. There's one I would encourage us. We need to be a body that is increasingly in prayer And as was mentioned earlier in Sunday school, not just for the medical illnesses, we should pray for those. Again, I'm proof of that. But to pray specifically that God's power is in this church. And God's power is in the fellowship of the church as well. But two is, we need to be intentional as a congregation about being friends. To be friends And if you will permit me for a moment, I'm going to address the golden oldies in the room specifically. I believe you are the most gifted people in the room for this, and the most important. And there's two reasons why. One, you have time in a way that very few others in the room do. And two, every kind of sociological survey that we've seen says you have not destroyed your brain yet on social media. So you're the only competent humans in the room to be relational. <laughs> you laugh at that, but I, I mean, I'm, I'm 100% deadly serious in this, right? I mean, think about how much of my current marriage counseling, how much of my current counseling in general is because people don't actually know how to carry on a conversation, right? Golden oldies, y'all were probably raised around a family table. You probably spent time talking with grandma, granddad. You've learned how to have a conversation. Please be the initiators in getting people together to have conversations. And I would say, I know you're scared of the young people because you can't understand them when they talk. (laughs) I know that. But they are scared of everyone, so you're fine. Just go talk to them. I promise it'll be okay, and they'll feel better about it afterwards. I'm not kidding. The number one reason why pe- millennials and, and Gen Z say they can't be friends with anyone is because their, sh- their shyness is debilitating. 53% in the study I saw. Why? Well, as the great song lyric says, great philosophy theologian here, our loneliness is killing us. 100%. It's killing us individually. It's killing us as a nation And God has designed this, the church, to be part of the remedy. In fact, I would say it's even more than that. It's why the means of grace themselves are designed to be corporate. So that we can grow together. I've been in pastoral ministry for almost two decades. And I will say the rate of families that implode, that are regularly in the church, all the time, everywhere they can be, and families that are not, it is not a comparable thing. It's just a simple way to help make sure your family does well. Because we're living in a dying world, friends. And this is where life is found. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your church that you have built us together. Forgive us for our fear of one another. Forgive us for our dislike of one another. Forgive us for our sin. Would your Spirit be pleased, O God, to work within us, to give us love of neighbor. For Christ's sake, amen.